this is Conspiranormal. Okay, guys, welcome back to Conspiranormal. It's Adam, and Serfiel is also with me. And we have one of our favorite friends of the show, returning guest, Recluse. Yes, sir. Snyder. Yes, sir. Recluse. Recluse is back for the third time this year. I guess technically fourth time this year, considering he was also a speaker at Strange Realities this year. So welcome back, Stephen. Well, thank you guys very much for having me back again for a third or fourth time, whichever we're going with. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about your book, uh, A Special Relationship. And this is uh, this is a very interesting book. Uh, we've been um, expecting it for a little while. And it's actually um, the first, I guess, in a trilogy that um, surrounds the Jeffrey Epstein story. But the subtitle of this is A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. So, Stephen, I'll ask you this to kind of start off. Um, what brought you to like the curiosity to go ahead and write this book? Well, I mean, it really you know, went into something that um, you know, we're going to talk about later, but that was just seeing the extensive amount of family ties uh, between some of the individuals who showed up in Epstein's Black Book and uh, many of the families that were implicated in the Perfumo affair. Um, you know, and I've usually been the kind of person to dismiss a lot of the, you know, kind of multi-generational speculations about uh, sex rings and that type of thing. But um, after looking at that topic, I mean, it was just or these connections. It was just really, really fascinating to me. Um, I wrote a couple of blogs about that back when uh, the Epstein thing really started to get big again um, in 2019. And um, it just kind of occurred to me, well, why not do it as a book? You know, I kept coming up with more and more interesting, you know, leads. So I might as well get paid for it ultimately. Um, and then, of course, it got started. Um, you know, as I was telling you guys before uh, we started recording, it was originally supposed to be uh, one book. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, after the, about two chapters, I was about 30,000 words in. So it's like, okay, this is going to, you know, rival war and peace, uh, you know, like 2,000 <laughs> words or something. So probably to make Make it more digestible to the broader audience uh maybe go with just a trilogy so now you are directly competing with dr future on who can get the trilogy out faster uh, i'll definitely be doc future on that i am very prolific writer if nothing else <laughs> all right so you call the book you use a term in there called special relationship and what is the special relationship uh what do you mean by that term well, it's interesting, of course, you know, we always hear about the storied special relationship um, between the U.S. and the U.K. And um, when I began researching this project, I found out that um, that really wasn't even a thing until the Second World War, um, really up to that point in time when many Americans thought of a European nation that um, the United States had a special relationship with. It was typically France. Um, France, you know, of course, we were brothers in democracy. They had declared their republic shortly after the American Revolution. They had supported us in the American Revolution, and we had always had that kind of bond. 
Um, but going into the Second World War, there was the strong isolationist movement in the United States, and um, the special relationship or the concept of it was essentially something that was constructed by British propagandists, uh, especially those centered around the British security coordination, which was the you know principal intelligence service in North America for the Brits. Uh, they came up with this whole concept of a special relationship as a means of political warfare, effectively, in this country. So that was kind of the genesis of what we would now think of as the special relationship, though, of course, there had been this kind of ongoing attempt by American elites and British elites uh, towards the end of late 19th century, the early 20th century, to forge closer bonds with the country. But, um, you know, this whole process really didn't kick into high gear until the eras of the two world wars. So would that be kind of similar to this kind of uh, one of the big conspiracy villains is the Roundtable group, like Cecil Rhodes and the Roundtable group? Would that be kind of, uh, would that be something that would be a part of the special relationship? Oh, yes, absolutely. Though um, it should be pointed out, though, there was an even more exclusive club, uh, an earlier club to an Anglo-American fellowship, one known as the uh, the Pilgrim Society. Uh, that one's very rarely addressed. Uh, I really have to give a tip of the hat to the Institute for the Study of Globalization and Convert Politics. Uh, Joel, the longtime curator there, is really one of the only individuals who's ever attempted to chronicle the Pilgrim Society. But that was really kind of the genesis of this, you know, uh, intertwinement between the you know kind of aristocracies of the u.s and the uk and in a lot of ways um quigley's whole roundtable group was kind of an outgrowth of that and uh in the uk what was known as the cecil block so but yes it is um, you know to answer your question it is a part of that but it wasn't the only you know uh player in this whole shenanigan so to speak so you in the first chapter you give a little bit you give this extensive background of what the um what the special this nature of the special relationship is you talk about some of the different kinds of um ideas that were that were bandied about by the people in the special relationship and you got two schools of thought that you talk about and that is internationalism versus pax americana which kind of, in a way, if you look, if you see those words, it kind of is obvious what they're talking about. But what do you kind of mean by this internationalism versus the idea of an American peace? Well, I mean, it, it was really sort of, it goes back to the founding of our country and the two different visions uh, that were present at the time, you know, after the revolution. Uh, you had kind of the federalist vision, which sought closer uh, ties with uh UK and of course with the other European powers and then conversely you had the kind of Jeffersonian vision that uh, eventually you know crystallized as manifest destiny throughout the 19th century and this kind of gradual expansion westward and so forth and um, as time went on eventually they did sort of morph into these two different ideologies of a Pax Americana and versus this sort of more internationalist and later globalist ideology um, the globalist one really derived from the old sort of federalist vision. It was obviously centered in the same region of the country in New York and the tri-state areas and so forth and was largely driven by the banking powers and that type of thing. 
And then on the flip side of the coin, Manifest Destiny, I mean, it never really went away. You know, I mean, it kind of continued on and on. Uh, there was a bit of a lull, I guess, after the Civil War, but it was massively rekindled with the administration of William McKinley. Of course, uh, this is at the late 19th century. By this point in time, uh, there was no more West in uh, these United States, at least. The closing of the West, I think, was officially in 1892 or something like that. So where do you go from there? And the answer was we would continue forging ahead into the Pacific and uh, would try to bring more and more of the rest of the world under the American banner. And this was always sort of driven by this, uh, you know, fanatical desire, uh, you know, with the, you know, the destiny of the United States to spread democracy all over the world and so forth, though it did ultimately deteriorate into a very imperialistic vision um, and this is very much the genesis of America first. Um, I mean, of course, you know, when we look at these groups like that from the World War II era, they're always described as isolationists, but that's not really accurate. I mean, what a lot of these groups were always opposed uh, to was entanglement with the European powers, close ties with the European powers, and then later the League of Nations and that type of thing. They really had no problem with military intervention so long as it was focused into the Pacific and uh, the westward expansion right so and then you have this whole idea of internationalism which is much more this thing that comes out i guess uh, world war after world war ii like the Bretton woods agreement uh kind of like an economic uh unity of the world essentially yeah 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 well i mean also too i mean even within the internationalist campus i kind of get into in the book there were two competing schools i mean you had sort of the theodore roosevelt camp which is what we would now think of as uh today's neocons i mean they also sort of embraced this more of america first mentality though they were more uh, open to relations with the british than uh some of their counterparts and sort of the uh isolationist camp if you will but uh and then on the other hand obviously you had sort of quigley's round table group that was fueling the more of the globalist internationalist vision which eventually became a full-blown globalism after uh, the second world war and this is where we got the united nations and all that kind of stuff though um you know i've always kind of said this but i mean how serious a lot of these different camps really were about the un and that you know whole sort of school was highly debatable um, but certainly it was something that did have a lot of appeal to uh, the business interests, but maybe not so much uh, the military uh, faction, I guess, if you will, the more conservative group that was centered around the War Department and then later the Pentagon. And then, of course, the isolationist camp never really wanted anything to do with this kind of global network that the uh, Wall Street interests were fascinated by. Right. And you you talk a, a little bit about, um, which is actually a book that I have here, uh, The Wise Men. And these are guys like Averill Harriman and uh, some of these people that have really, like uh, George Kennan, I think was another one, that really influenced uh, kind of like Amer at least American policy uh, all the way into the Cold War and kind of really set the really kind of set the parameters of the cold war, the idea of containment of the Soviet union and all these type of things. So how does that, you know, re relate to uh, great Britain and what's going on there? Well, this camp really grew out of uh, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, school of foreign policy, which was really adamant about America first. Um, a lot of these guys were brought into the war department by Henry Stimson 
uh, Skull and Bonesman. And as I'm sure you guys are aware, I mean, obviously the Wiseman camp did have a fair amount of Bonesman in it. Um, Harriman was a Bonesman, and uh, I believe one or two of the other ones were McCloy, maybe. I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, these guys were essentially, uh, you know, kind of the descendants of the uh, modern day neoconservative movement. Of course, they were Democrats in this era. They came into government during the administration of FDR and they would continue to wield a tremendous amount of power throughout uh, Truman's administration and then later in Kennedy's administration and also to some extent in Eisenhower's as well. Um, but their descendants, uh, kind of with people like Paul Nitze and so forth, eventually departed uh, and kind of served as the genesis of the neocon movement in the mid-70s after uh, the kind of realignment within the Democratic Party. But um, these guys, they had a complex relationship with the UK. Many of them were quite Anglophilic. But um, in the era in the 1950s, the early 60s, when their influence really was at their peak uh they were not especially uh, game to try to keep the british empire afloat you know this was sort of where those really hardcore i think american sentiment came through a lot of these guys saw uh you know the kind of anti-colonial movement that began to emerge in the aftermath of the second world war is a great way to push out the old uh, european powers in a lot of regions of the world that previously had been closed to the united states especially the middle east which you know everybody knew was going to be tremendously strategically important because of the oil reserves so it was a great way you know i mean to try to get an american influence in a lot of these regions of the world that uh, previously we had really been denied to. Um, now, these guys would reverse course later, but uh, in that kind of particular era, they were kind of at the forefront of trying to break the you know, British and ultimately kind of European stranglehold on a lot of areas of the world. But then also the, the British really looked towards that, that uh, new uh, Pax Americana post-World War II, while their empire is waning, they, they really looked to our foreign policy future entanglements as a way to channel and continue some of their interests yeah well i mean <clears throat> a lot of the old you know guard british establishment i mean they had come up uh you know with the whole round table movement and they thought that inevitably they had to continue with their wagon hitch to the united states um even though there was a lot of dispute, I guess, among some of the younger generation. Um, it's kind of interesting, but I mean, on the far right of the Tory party, the British Conservative Party, in this era, at least, there was a lot of support for the European Union. Um, they kind of saw it as a means of potentially you know, creating an independent power base for the UK outside of American influence. Of course, the UK did have a lot of prestige at this time in Western Europe because of their role in the Second World War. And um, it was kind of thought that you know maybe you know this would be the next coming thing maybe we shouldn't align ourselves too closely with american destiny especially since the u.s really was adamant about dismantling the british empire uh when it was expedient for us in regions of the world where we wanted influence so you know it was definitely uh you know a bit of a power struggle there and i think that was kind of something that later played into with profumo though ironically i mean the same kind of group of far-right tories uh would ultimately side with some of the most you know militantly uh pax americanist americans uh later in their efforts to dislodge their government so you speak about uh before we go on to kind of why it's important to understand all this it you talk about this two groups uh wcc and the bacc 
So what's their importance to this kind of like, you know, the, the, the special relationship? Well, essentially the world commerce corporation and it's, you know, sister outfit, the American or the British American Canadian corporation were both set up uh, really in the immediate aftermath of the second world war. Uh, and effectively they were used to stash a lot of the assets from the uh, American and uh, British intelligence services that were being shuttered at the time. You know, we were going into this great era of lasting peace and, you know, so on and so forth. And uh, theoretically we didn't need these intelligence services. And um, of course there were also a lot of interagency rivalries playing out on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, MI6 despised the special operations executive, which was one of the big British intelligence services that was shuttered. And they were also the guys, uh, the SOE, who had a lot of the expertise in special operations. So there was a general sense that these guys would be very valuable in the post-war years. And of course, in the United States, the Pentagon and the FBI had long despised the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. It was shuttered. Again, all of this quote-unquote priceless talent was now out on the street. Uh, it was kind of thought that we needed some way that we could, uh, you know, set these guys up until cooler heads prevailed in theory and they would be brought back into official government capacities so that was at least the initial ideal for the world commerce corporation but um uh it was a little different obviously in the british uh side of things i mean there was already a big you know entrenched intelligence service there in mi6 um, the SOE guys, they were not going to be able to take over that outfit the way the OSS guys were able to do with the CIA when it was established because there really wasn't, you know, any kind of predecessor other than the OSS there to compete with. Um, so, you know, definitely there was a different situation. And that's kind of why ultimately I think the World Commerce Corporation Network was so much more important in the UK because the OSS guys, I mean, they had the ability to basically co-opt the CIA totally by the Eisenhower administration. And that just really, you know, was not going to happen in the UK for obvious reasons. So with all this background, Stephen, uh, why is it important for it to understand both your Profumo affair and Epstein? Why is that background important to those two well, it's important because, I mean, I think ultimately with both Profumo and, you know, especially with Epstein, I mean, a lot of this unfolds against the backdrop of uh, what is effectively private intelligence networks with uh, the you know official governments of uh, both the U.S. and U.K. only having nominal control at best over them. And I mean, this is something that I think, you know, in the UK, it's really been an ongoing problem since the end of the Second World War. Here, it really became a major issue um, getting into the Carter administration. But I mean, you know, you have all of these spooks. Uh, they create these, you know, vast private fiefdoms, a lot of times that have blackmail rings and arms trafficking and narcotics trafficking. And all of this stuff is very lucrative and it's very compromising. And when you fire these guys, you know, from MI6 or the CIA or whatever, these, you know, fiefdoms, they just don't disappear. You know, they still continue. And now you have these guys that are almost totally outside of any government control running them still. And, you know, well, what happens if they decide that they're going to reorient the country in a direction that they think that it should be going in? Well, it essentially, it means that the democratic process is totally uh, short-sighted, you know, by these private actors. 
You know, I mean, I think that's very much, you know, a legacy of what we're seeing here in the United States, especially with the Cambridge Analytica stuff. Uh, you know, this is uh, the end result, I think, of just decades and decades of these private intelligence networks and the damage that they have done to both of these countries. Yeah, right. their, their wealth can be measured point. not only by the actual wealth that they make uh, through usually through, um, you know, the types of shady things you talked about, but just the fact that information is probably the, some of the most valuable things in the world, especially compromising information, uh, information that yeah. can get, get people in line with an agenda. I mean, if you look at it that way, these are, you know, the, the power just exponentially increases. And, you know, and it's, you know, like I said, and that's also the significance is there is so much overlap with a lot of this stuff. I mean, with Epstein, obviously, everybody focuses on uh, the sex trafficking, which is important. But I mean, I, it seems like Epstein was also very heavily involved in arms trafficking, which in some ways is even more significant. And this is kind of something that I'm laying the foundation for in this first book, kind of going into sort of the entwinement of all of this and the figure of Julian Amory, um, who obviously we'll get to here in a little bit. Yeah, that uh, that's definitely a good point about Epstein. Um, I mean, we I think that there's no doubt in my mind or in any of our minds that the, that he had some kind of ties to intelligence as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that he was probably a triple. He's probably a triple agent, just like his girlfriend's dad was a triple agent. You know, and that's the other thing. I mean, when you have all of these private actors, you know, I mean, out there, well, I mean, you know, who are they loyal to ultimately? Right. I mean, a lot of times these guys end up having dealings with multiple security services. And, you know, in the case of, you know, again, when we look at kind of the sprawl around Cambridge Analytica, I mean, you've got people from U.S. intelligence services, U.K. intelligence services, the Israelis, the Russians, uh, you know, I mean, private contractors like Eric Prince. I mean, it's just a whole smorgasbord of different interests involved in this kind of stuff. Yes. Very, very much so. Kind of setting the background, though, for this, uh, for Profumo which we will get to everyone. Uh, there's a little bit of a hit in this special relationship when you come to the Suez crisis and a little bit of a change, kind of the attitude of the United States to, to, to the British and to the British empire. And you've also got like the, what's a, uh, the coup against Mosaddegh that happens in 1953. Uh, the American support for Nasser, which plays right into the Suez crisis. So there's going to be like a little bit of a split here within the special relationship. And you kind of maintain in the book that later on there's a reorientation of the special relationship. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think specifically between the American right and later the British right, and I mean, you know, again, kind of going back to the Second World War, I mean, the America Far Right, the America First Committee, I mean, they, you know, despised the British and for good reason. I mean, Sir William Stevenson, I mean, it just absolutely destroyed them while he was uh, here running uh, British intelligence operations. Um, and that's kind of interesting in light, obviously, what we're seeing now with um, the current election. Um, you know, again, when you want to talk about election rigging in this country, I mean, Stevenson was really the guy who wrote the book on it. I mean, hiring protesters to harass public figures, planning false stories, using prostitutes to sexually entrap prominent American politicians. I mean, these were all things that Stevenson, you know, absolutely pioneered. And, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying, I mean, it was all of this, you know, really, I mean, a lot of private stuff that was being done here. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it is just so fascinating in light of like what we're seeing unfolding now. And I mean, how all this has sort of played out now in this country for decades in kind of this gradual escalation to the current cluster, uh, I guess I shouldn't say cluster F on the air for you guys, but um, currently what we're certainly seeing right now uh, in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Yeah. And it's okay to curse here if you really need to. It's 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 it's, it's perfectly all right because it is a cluster F for sure. Uh, a lot of things are a cluster F right now. That's for damn. That's that's for damn sure. So I mean, the Suez crisis. Just briefly, I mean, that's the the U.S. the Britain Britain and France and the Israel basically given a pretext to just like stay in the Suez Canal, which was an important, uh, important for Britain because that's where its oil was shipped through. And it's, and, uh, by that time, India is already out of the British empire, but that's, uh, because of a pretty important, um, turning, turning point. point. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was pretty much, yeah. I mean, the full blown end of the British empire there, um, and it was just, it was a bizarre set of circumstances. Of course, you had this, you know, this world commerce network I had been kind of outlining previously, and they were, you know, basically at odds with each other in Suez. You had the different British and American players squaring off against each other. Um, of course, you had Ardo Scorzini, the infamous Nazi commando who had been hired by Nazar to uh, help train his security forces. He was part of this world commerce, you know, network. He was there, you know, effectively trying to train uh, the security Security forces for the Egyptians, while on the other hand, uh, the British partners were trying to overthrow Nazar. Uh, I mean, it's Suez is just so strange in a lot of ways. I mean, it's as far as I can even think of, it's one of the few times that uh, the United States even openly moved against Israel. Uh, why they were using ex Nazis, nonetheless, to you know effectively support Nazar. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just utterly devastating for the british and it had been kind of a gradual process of their loss of prestige in that whole region of the world i mean kind of going back to the you know the coup in iran earlier um that was actually something that had been started by uh what now you know we know as this british petroleum and oil company effectively which had been threatened with nationalization they had gotten mi6 involved and then eventually we had tried to get the americans in it wasn't happening under truman eisenhower was more you know, susceptible to this type of thing, but uh, he wanted a cut of the oil. So we had to, or the UK had to grant major concessions to the US and that. And um, from there, we had just been gradually pushing the British further and further out of that region of the world. And uh, that effectively climaxed with Suez. Um, more or less, the British had been running up an enormous debt to uh, fund their military operation there. They had asked the United States for a loan and Eisenhower said, no. And that basically was the end of the British Empire, at least officially, as they were forced to withdraw. And it became evident that, at least officially, they were unable to implement independent foreign policy without the United States' support in some form or other. But again, yeah. there was uh, one man who at least had a vision for how they could move forward from that. Yeah, so I mean, just a just like a note about the Mossadegh. I mean, the Mossadegh coup. I mean, that's a big turning point as well because you know Iran because essentially a satellite of the United States. After that, at least till 1979, that's what kind of sets that sets that uh, that countdown rolling to the Iranian Revolution. 
And then you also mentioned the Nazis working for Nasser, which you said one of them was Otto Scorzani, who pops up literally everywhere in the in in this time period. And interesting thing about Scorzani is that not that long after that, the Israelis were actually employing him to go after German scientists that were working for Egypt. Oh, yeah. And then, I mean, a few years after that, I mean, he was also helping the British you know, with some of their stuff in Yemen and what have you, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point here. And um, I think it reached the absolute absurdity with the um, the Algerian war that the French were fighting, because, I mean, on the one hand, he was... Um, arming i think the fln while at the same token he was trying to provide operational support to the french security forces oh, yeah. um yeah. yeah scorzini had an uncanny knack for playing both sides throughout the cold war and making a lot of money in the process it's essentially specter the james bond you know i mean it really yeah i mean and scorzini uh like I said, I mean, he pop he pops pops up everywhere. But yeah, do you guys remember that? Oh, that uh, um, what was it? Three Days of the Condor, that seventies movie. I've never seen it, but I know what you're talking about. Oh yeah, yeah, no, it's great. They have this like uh, ex Nazi. Uh, I don't think they were actually say he's a Nazi, but he's like this commando guy, shaved head. At the beginning of the movie, he walks in and wipes out that whole CIA station or something. And um, basically, the whole movie, he's trying to kill the main character, and then at the end, if I'm not mistaken, uh, yeah, he shows up, and the guy's like, "Are you going to kill me this time?" And he's like, "No, no, I'm working for your side now." It's <laughs> But that was basically, I mean, how a lot of these Nazis were kind of deployed in this. Yeah, I mean, the whole yeah. thing. And it was a lot more mercenary than people tend to. Scorzani also, one of his clients was also the uh, the the communist uh, branch of the PLO. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. in the case of, like, you know, the thing with Nazar, I mean, it's like he was actually hiring, like, ex-Nazis um, from the Eastern Bloc of Germany. So, I mean, these are guys, like, in the Communist Bloc, he was, like, bringing over to fight for the U.S. I mean, like I said, just the whole thing with uh, the Suez crisis is just surreal on so many levels. I mean, it really is. So, you, so you mentioned the person that was going to... Uh, have a d different idea I, and i suppose that's probably julian amory okay so i kind of what written down here about the kind of the roles of not just him but his father leopold as well yes leopold amory is just uh, he's a conspiracy theorist wet dream though he's never really talked about but i mean he had just practically all of the bases covered. He was a big figure in Quigley's Roundtable uh, group. He was one of the trustees for the Road Trust for many years. He was effectively Lord Milner's successor as head of the group. Uh, he was also a Freemason. He was a Fabian socialist. Um, he was a Zionist. In fact, he was probably one of the principal authors behind the Belfort Declaration, which laid the foundation for the creation of Israel. He's got all the, he's got all the bases covered. Yeah, I think about the only thing is I haven't found is that he wasn't a member of the Knights of Malta. That was really there were no big <laughs> Catholic groups that he was involved in. That was, I think, the only thing that he was really missing. But um, had to have been had to have been in the Illuminati at one point. Certainly, certainly. Jesuit for sure. <laughs> no, yeah, I would think yeah, either Jesuit Knight of Malta. You would think it would be in there somewhere, but I haven't found it yet but he, he certainly got around he was a member of the coefficients just pretty much almost every other thing that you could think of he was a member of so yeah big guy very powerful um throughout really the first half of the 20th century um in british government um of course he was a major backer of churchill he's um 
most well known for um, basically uh, slamming Chamberlain uh, before the British Parliament. Uh, what was it? I believe he repeated the um, the speech that had been, uh, been given to Cromwell during the long Parliament. Was this the uh, "For God's sakes, go"? Yes, yes. For all the good have you done? For too long have you sat in that chair, yeah. sir? Yes, yes, yes. So, um, and then yes, also the other time when. Um, Chamberlain had gotten up to uh, speak for the Conservative Party. Uh, Amory had supposedly said, speak for England, uh, which would later be used as a phrase for his biography. So um, he was quite a prominent member of um, British Parliament for many years. He was very close to Churchill. He was a major figure in the Round Table movement, certainly one of the most powerful and influential politicians of his era. So he was a Fabian socialist, but he was also a nationalist. Yes, yes, yes. Well, he did, in fairness, later break with the Fabian socialists effectively over his nationalism. I mean, he was first and foremost a diehard imperialist. He was not going to let the empire go without a fight. That is for sure. Um, and then, of course, he had two sons, both of whom are quite interesting. His oldest was John Emery. Um, he has the distinct um, honor of being one of the only uh, British subjects executed for treason in the aftermath of the Second World War. Uh, as I said before, uh, Leopold was a Zionist. He was half Jewish. Both of his sons were a quarter Jewish. Despite this, um, John Emery became a fanatical Nazi. He was involved in arms trafficking uh, for the Vichy regime um, in the interwar years for the Spanish Civil War. And then later he would become a full-blown propagandist for the Nazi regime. He was uh, kind of the uh, equivalent of Lord Hee Haw, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, they were you know, recording him and then beaming his broadcast into the UK and so forth. It was uh, quite embarrassing as uh, obviously Leopold was a member of the British Parliament at the time, a close advisor to Churchill, and now his oldest son um was being beamed into the uk to denounce the uh control of the jews over the government <laughs> um so yes there no doubt would be a lot of interesting psychological profiles that could be done on john amory um i even kind of attempted to do that a little bit in the book going into the history of sexual abuse that he had experienced uh, of course later uh, while he was still a minor he had effectively prostituted himself to wealthy men um amongst the different European elites and so forth. So um, he had gotten into some pretty shady stuff. And then there was uh, Leopold's youngest son, Julian, who would uh, become essentially the preeminent coup master uh, in British uh, security services in the uh, post-war years. Pretty much every major coup that uh, the UK was involved in in the 1950s and early 60s, uh, Julian Amory was there like some ragged, shadowy figure who uh, lurked about the Middle East with a uh, bag of cash in one hand. Um, he shows up in Iran. He shows up in Egypt. He shows up in Yemen later on. Uh, he was in Cyprus, uh, I believe, uh, where he uh, had MI6 procure sexual blackmail on the uh, ruler to uh, help ensure that the British got a favorable uh, um, treaty when they decided to uh, leave that area of the country of the world. So he was a big player in a lot of this type of stuff. And then it uh, kind of seems like going into the early 60s, he became obsessed with um, bringing a government to the UK that is, uh, I believe Colin Wallace would say, had more resolve. So he, so he kind of had a different idea of how to like restructure this 
the special relationship? Yes, yes, yes. Well, I mean, he was also one of the guys who really kind of forged uh, ties effectively with the American far right as well, um, potentially with Hoover or Hoover's kind of faction within the American far right, which was remarkable because Hoover just despised the British going back to his uh, dealings with Sir William Stevenson. They did not like each other, to put it mildly. And um, Hoover had maintained a lot of animosity towards the British and their security services for years afterwards. So, um, that in and of itself was uh, quite a novel approach on Amory's part. <laughs> so we've kind of, we've set the background now and now it's time to get into the juicy kinky stuff. So to kind of set up the Profumo affair, you have these parties that are going on in London at the time that involve some of these people. And one of there's a guy that's kind of like i guess you could call him a supplier of these girls stephen ward yeah yeah so what is kind of his connections to that party and sex orgy scene well yes he um was as i said a society we need all the details for the listeners don't as our as our mutual friend uh, Nathan from Penny Royal Podcast says, helping them all eyes wide shut and shit. <laughs> yeah, it was it was quite eyes wide shut. So uh, Ward had actually gotten into British society through the um, aid of um, Harriman, Avril Harriman, the uh, Bonesman, member of the whole wise man clique and so forth. Uh, he had been looking for a good osteopath while he was the UK ambassador and osteopathy was not really that big in uh, the UK at the time, but Ward... Uh, Unless anybody doesn't know, because I'm not quite sure myself, what is an osteopath? It's kind of similar to like a chiropractor that they also use some amount of massage as well but um, kind of something along those lines. Yeah, I I was a little foggy on that uh, myself. Obviously, you know, we know a lot about chiropractors now, but uh, not so much about osteopaths as much anymore. But um, so anyway, uh, it wasn't really big in the UK at the time. Uh, Ward uh, then got the call to Harriman. Uh, Harriman was impressed with his work. He started introducing him to a lot of his buddies. They included uh, people like Winston Churchill, members of his family. And that was kind of Ward's inroad. Uh, but the big score for him was really when he started to uh, make ties with the royal family. And that kind of seems like it was his um, introduction to this uh, this whole kind of netherworld of course, um, one of his friends was a uh, prominent photographer. Uh, he was known as Baron. Um, can't remember what his actual name was now off the top of my head, but everybody called him Baron. Uh, he was the official photographer for the royal family for a time. And uh, the person who had really gotten him this gig was uh, Lord Louis Montbatten, or Uncle Dickie, as uh, Prince Philip liked to refer to him. Um, of course, uh, if you followed anything with pedophile scandals in the UK, Montbatten should raise some serious red flags. Uh, he was deeply implicated in Concora and lots of other things. Uh, just a really reprehensible human being on any number of levels. Um, and then, of course, uh, there were some of his um, uh, relatives that uh, Prince Philip was hanging out with. Um, other members of the Montbatten family. So all of these guys uh, had kind of been come involved in some of these strange sex parties. Uh, Baron was known for throwing these specifically. Uh, one of the most notable ones, uh, which had partly inspired my cover, was uh, the 
one that involved women dressed up in uh, Masonic aprons, uh, going around with whips and so forth. Um, there was this kind of a weird occult stuff that did appear in that. I mean, obviously, you know, you always kind of wonder if this stuff really is a thing. I mean, can you find serious documentation of it, you know, outside of something like Kathy O'Brien? And um, that's one of the reasons why Perfumo is so intriguing because it does have a lot of very hard evidence of this kind of stuff especially um when you get into some of the parties that were thrown by another one of ward's uh, associates that was hod dibbins hod had actually been a member of the plymouth brethren the uh, same group of fanatical christians that alistair crowley had belonged to um they certainly do seem to have turned out some uh, rather perverse individuals over the years. Um, Hod had apparently had some kind of come to Jesus moment in the 1930s when he had walked by a neighbor's house. Uh, the window blinds were open and he saw uh, his neighbor being whipped. And uh, it really opened his eyes to the possibilities that the world offered or something to that effect. Good, good, good times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hod liked to do some of these weird occult orgies. He used, also had peacocks, I guess, apparently there. Um, he eventually married a woman, uh, Maria Novikov, Natikov, I can't Gosh, I can't remember her last name off the top of my head, but uh, she later had the nickname as the Chief Whip, um, based on her skills with the whip for the uh, par- uh, for the cabinet of Harold Macmillan. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of really strange stuff like that that was uh, going on. Um, Ward, of course, the girls that he procured were largely of age. Uh, there were a few women who were around 17 years old, maybe a few 16-year-olds, though he did specifically recruit these women on the basis of their ability to pass as teenagers. Um, How old was Christine Keeler? Was she 19? Yeah, I believe she was 18 yeah. or 19. Yeah. Um, you know, as I've kind of gotten into in the book, I do think that was one of the reasons why the scandal did petrify British society, because even though the girls that Ward was using were mostly legal, you know, there were these kind of connections to people like Montbatten, the Cray twins, that type of thing that yeah. did sort of shine a light on this underbelly of um, people who were not of legal age being used in these sex rings. You talked about uh, something, a, a point that I, I think is 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 important here is these kind of like these occult orgies and all this occult symbolism and all this. This is just another way, essentially, of blackmailing somebody or, or doing it in a way that will like it makes it so unbelievable that it cannot be traced. Yeah, well, that was something I wanted to emphasize. That, and it's just kinky shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of, you know, I mean, I definitely think that there are people who have been involved in these things that took this stuff very seriously. I mean, of course, I think it was Michael Benteen or somebody like that had speculated that Ward's Ring was an attempt to recreate the old Hellfire Clubs. Maybe it was, uh-huh. maybe it wasn't, but... That's the early Anglo Anglo American establishment right there. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. Benjamin Franklin, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's okay. So, but the thing I mean about this though is, I do think that there was though a practical reason for this occultism to appear in this stuff. And yes, one of it was for the blackmail purposes in and of itself. I mean, obviously if you get a politician, I mean, certainly a conservative politician involved in a black mass, even if there's, you know, not pretty girls there or something to that effect, uh, it's not going to help his reputation, but 
I actually think, though, the more pertinent reason as to why this kind of ritualistic trapping was done with some of this stuff was effectively to discredit the victims. Because, uh, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, especially in the aftermath of Epstein and Jimmy Savile in the UK and so forth, it's really not that unbelievable to most Americans or Britons anymore that elites do have pedophile rings where they do abuse underage uh, boys and girls. But, uh, you know, you start talking about, you know, capes and black masks and that uh, type of thing that uh, will almost immediately destroy your credibility. I mean, automatically people will start dismissing you as a kook, which in my opinion is exactly why this stuff is probably done. And it's not, you know, I mean, I'm sure, as I said before, there are people who do take this stuff really seriously, but I think a lot of people who do end up participating in these weird occult themed orgies are probably told that the reason why they're doing it in the first place is to make sure that if any of the people, uh, you know the kids that are being used for this stuff come forward and start talking about you know seeing a uh, pentagram or something like that they're going to be laughed out of um you know the courtroom or whatever so there is a logical reason for this being done and that's you know in a way it kind of makes it even more insidious now we live in a time where that information that information in and of itself is weaponized but that's a whole other that's a whole other issue uh some of the interesting connections that you've made, um, you know, Stanley Kubrick and Serfiel mentioned jokingly Eyes Wide Shut, but I cannot help but think of Eyes Wide Shut when I read this stuff. And I mean, there's, there's scenes that are in the book that you describe that are very, very similar. And you do make the point that Kubrick is kind of hanging out in this kind of milieu at the time. And you also refer to Thomas Corbley and kind of copying the kind of parties and bringing them like to New York City that were going on in London and like stuff like the Cotton Club murders. So let's talk a little bit about that and what kind of like, because I think Kubrick knew something. Yeah, that was very much the sense I got researching a lot of this, too. I do think that, yes, he was definitely dropping hints uh, and eyes wide shut about, you know, these rings that uh, kind of originated in the UK. And then, as you kind of alluded to, Corbley at least claimed that he was the one that had brought this type of stuff over to the United States in the, I think it was like, what, the mid-60s or something like that. But basically, this weird S&M scene with, the, you know, these theatrics and so forth, and a lot of this stuff was taking place in these um, these isolated mansions, you know, out in the middle of nowhere in New York State, outside of the city. You know, very much what Tom Cruise kind of experiences and eyes wide shut when he's invited to one of these parties or I should say crashes one of these parties more likely. Right, right. Um, but yeah, and that's sort of where the whole Cotton Club thing came into play. Of course, you know, that took place in Long Island. Um, I think it was the Hampshires or something to that effect. And involved Roy Raiden. Um, Raiden, of course, had first gained notoriety because of the whole um, incident with Monica Heller. She was a <clears throat> an actress who had attended one of these parties, and she had claimed effectively that she had been raped, and I believe filmed also while this was going on, and that it caused a major scandal. And um, it later came out um, 
many, many years later that Corbally was actually the one who had blown the whistle effectively on uh, what was going on with Raiden. And he had done this because, um, you know, kind of as Christopher Knowles has alluded to with this type of stuff, the problems start to emerge when the amateurs start getting in on the act. Uh, and that kind of seems to have been Corbally's mentality. Corbally was part of the responsible S&M clique or some such shit um, who knew limits that should not be passed. And and uh, Raiden and, you know, these Johnny-come-latelys, it just started to get a little too weird. You know, they were starting to bring public attention to all the stuff that was going on at these mansions. And uh, that wasn't a good thing. Of course, um, Raiden later turned up in the Cotton Club murders. Um, of course, Cotton Club was a movie that uh, Francis Ford Coppola directed that uh, the infamous producer, Robert Evans, uh, was involved with. Um, they had been trying to get this off the ground, Raiden, because of his... Uh, extracurricular activities, which uh, probably involved drug trafficking, had some cash. Um, later, though, he was double-crossed by some of his other investors, and uh, he ended up dead And I believe it was 1983. And, uh, of course, that whole you know, death has led to much speculation over the years. Of course, there's a lot of thoughts that it was tied in with the process church, the final judgment and the Manson killings. Of course, his uh, murderer, the man was later convicted for his mur murder was uh, William Mincer, I believe is how his last name was pronounced to uh, Maury Terry had alluded to as being the infamous Manson too. Yeah. I was about to ask you if that was in the ultimate evil. Yeah. So, yeah, um, you know, it kind of ties into all that. And that's uh, certainly something that I'll look much closer at uh, in one of the later books. But, um, you know, that just kind of gives you a scope of how weird this stuff kind of gets. I mean, of course, um, the uh, co-founder of the Process Church, the Final Judgment, Marianne de Grimstone, was uh, rumored for many years to have been one of world's awards girls back in the day so you know there are these kind of long-standing connections that might have been present uh, and then of course robert de grimstone had been an officer in the british army uh before he had gotten into all the scientology stuff and what have you so that raises a lot of interesting possibilities as well well i kind of I, I i realized that um by reading this and this is this is going to sound silly but like monty python monty python used to make a fun of a lot of this kind of stuff like they did a lot of jokes about dominatrixes and uh especially like east end gangsters and stuff um i mean i'm only really familiar with holy grail and uh the life of brian i haven't actually watched too much of the show but i'll take your word for it <laughs> yeah this would have been in the flying circus Okay, okay, okay. And I mean, I could definitely see it, but I mean, yeah, that has been, you know, I think kind of going back to at least Perfumo, it was kind of known that this was the sort of, you know, uh, kinky stuff that the British establishment got up to. So let's go through the uh, kind of the details of the Perfumo, Perfumo affair. Like what happened with that? Well, I mean, obviously it revolved around a figure named John Perfumo. He was a member of Harold Macmillan's cabinet, who at the time when the affair started was the prime minister. Uh, the other big uh, player was the woman you had alluded to earlier, Christine Keeler, a uh, showgirl, quote unquote. And uh, the other big figure was uh, Yuri Ivanov, um, the Soviet military attache and also an agent of the GRU, which was uh, the Soviet Union's principal military intelligence service. And it still is Russia's principal military intelligence service to this day. Um, <clears throat> 
the affair um, had really got going uh, at a house party in 1961 that was held at a uh, location known as Cliveton that uh, was owned by the Astor family, the uh, famous Anglo-American Astor family, whose uh, fortune had uh, originally been built on opium smuggling. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, the party was also, of course, in the honor of uh, for the uh, Lord Mountbatten, so uh, he was present at this as well. Uh, appropriate figure to uh, be stationed there for what would later unfold, I suppose. Uh, so anyway, um, Keeler would initially have an affair with Ivanov and then later with uh, Perfumo. And uh, that created some issues, to put it mildly, because now you had a senior cabinet minister who was having an affair with a woman who was also sleeping with a Soviet spy, though um, Ivanov and Keeler would later insist that they only slept together once. Though I guess Keeler has changed her story or did change her story on multiple occasions with that. But um, it's generally agreed, I guess, that they only slept together once. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, regardless if it was only that one time, this did create some um, pretty major security concerns. And that was really the basis of the scandal, which ultimately brought down Harold Macmillan's government in 1963 when it started to finally break in the press. Uh, that would have been towards the end of 1962 and it really got going in 63. So your idea here is that this was really some kind of honeypot situation that this was kind of set up and meant to, to bring the McMillan government down. Well, originally, uh, I think it was simply meant to entrap um, Ivanov, and then it was only later uh, that it was, uh, you know, seen as opportunistic way of bringing down Macmillan's government. I mean, you know, one of the things I sort of got into in the book was that, you know, at the same time this was unfolding, Julian Amory was trying to set up his whole operation in Yemen, which was just pivotal for British foreign policy going forward. I mean, this is something I got into in my earlier book, uh, Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, but I mean, effectively, um, Amory and his buddy, um, Colonel David Sterling, the uh, co-founder of the Special Air Services, I mean, these were basically the two men who created the modern private military industry um, with WatchGuard International. And this had grown out of the Yemen operation that Amri was setting up. And um, effectively, you know, they came up with this whole means where you would use British troops uh, who were no longer part of the British military, mercenaries, in other words, British arms. And you would get another uh, party, in this case, uh, the House of Saud, to fund uh, what were effectively British operations. Um, it totally had almost no ties whatsoever to what Macmillan was doing. Um, and the British government, and this made it very controversial. Um, Amory was uh, Macmillan's son-in-law to boot, um, but uh, he was ultimately a diehard British imperialist, and uh, having devised a effective way to maintain British power um, without actually working through the British government, uh, it does not seem that his father-in-law was going to be allowed to stand in his way to implement these policies. And uh, that is essentially the premise of why I think um, the Profimo affair was eventually leaked to the press in 63. Hmm. That's, uh, <laughs> I, I always just looked at this as just some kind of just weird sex scandal, but to see that there's a whole hell of a lot more to it is extremely fascinating. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's one of the problems, really, with a lot of the researchers looking at perfumos. They tended to just focus on the affair itself and not kind of the broader geopolitical situation that was unfolding in the U.S. and the U.K. at the time. And I think that's, you know, why nobody's ever really been able to satisfactorily explain, like, what the motives were behind uh, the leakage eventually in 63, until my book was published anyway. Right, right. Exactly. And in, in addition, in addition to some of these these people and their families and and children being involved later with the Epstein stuff, um, you were also kind of like insinuating that this type of operation uh, might have been part of what was behind um, the the Epstein stuff as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it is very much a legacy. And I mean, I do think there is something of a direct lineage. I mean, obviously, that's, you know, going to be unfolded gradually over the course of the next couple of books. But, um, you know, I kind of had laid the foundation, though, by going into the Mayfair set and uh, this particular book. And that will definitely be crucial going forward to kind of understand how this you know kind of uh, brownstone ring uh, these brownstone operations in the ring that was uh, sponsoring them has kind of passed down you know seemingly for several generations now and uh epstein ended up as a player in it uh at least by the 1980s yeah, what was the mayfair set well they were a group of uh businessmen and so forth ex-soldiers and what have you that uh would meet at a gaming establishment known as the claremont club uh, sometimes they're also, for that reason, known as the Claremont set. Um, Adam Curtis actually did quite um, an excellent documentary series on them. Um, I think it came out in 2000, uh, aptly titled The Mayfair Set. Some of the big figures included uh, Sir James Goldsmith, Tiny Rowland, um, of course, the uh, head founder of the club, Joe Aspinall, who was a fanatical eugenicist, a very interesting character, as were many of the other guys involved with the Mayfair set. Um, they started to gain a lot of notoriety in the late 60s, early 70s, when um, several members showed up in rather prominent roles uh, in the attempts to destabilize the British government, which uh, will definitely be a major point of emphasis in the second book. So these guys got into some pretty heavy parapolitics, and um, one of them specifically, Sir James Goldsmith, is just really uh, crucial to a lot of what would unfold in the UK in the 21st century, because, I mean, he was really the first major figure to put a lot of financial support behind um, the UK leaving the EU. Uh, he was the first individual to found a political party in the 90s that was totally based on um, the UK departing the EU. And uh, a lot of his you know, former associates and even his son-in-law would later become major uh, financial supporters of Brexit. So Goldsmith, you know, I mean, Brexit is very much Goldsmith's legacy. And, um, you know, he was involved in a lot of other stuff that's very relevant to Epstein as well. I want to hit a little bit about the SOE. Oh, sure. And uh, uh, like you, you are setting it up for uh, you are setting it up for Robert Maxwell because he he is part of of the SOE. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, kind of the you know old boys network. I mean, obviously in the U.S. we had the OSS old boys in the U.K. They had the uh, SOE old boys. 
uh, the special operations executive, like I kind of alluded to earlier, I mean, this was, you know, essentially what, uh, as the title implies, did the kind of covert operations for the UK during the Second World War. Uh, if you wanted to assassinate someone or blow up a bridge or that type of thing, I mean, the SOE is who handled uh, these operations. So they would become very instrumental in the post-war years with a lot of coups and that type of thing. And um, <clears throat> certainly they did play a pretty significant role uh, in Robert Maxwell's early development. Um, one of the big figures in the SOE was Sir Charles Hambro, a member of the storied banking dynasty. Um, very, very powerful figure um, in the British establishment for many years. I mean, he'd also been a director of the Bank of England, I think, about the time he was only like 35 or something to that effect. Uh, and of course, the Hambro family just, you know, they were pivotal banking dynasty for many, many years in the UK, and they still wield a lot of influence. Um, anyway, Maxwell, or, <clears throat> excuse me, Hambro was also deeply involved in a lot of scientific espionage and specifically trying to get nuclear secrets and that type of thing from the Nazi regime uh, in the aftermath of the war. And then later trying to keep tabs effectively on what the Soviets were up to. And uh, one of the methods that they kind of devised for this was um, scientific journals. You know, I mean, it was always great to mine open source material. There usually are a lot of possibilities for that. And um, that had led to them setting up a company, um, was it Butterworth Springer, that was uh, kind of a uh, combination of a German firm and a British one. It was not very financially successful, though they did have a managing director who had shown a lot of talent, and that was a certain Robert Maxwell. After the German partners had decided to back out, uh, effectively, the decision was made to uh, let Maxwell buy it. And uh, he had no money, really, at the time. Hambro gave him a tremendous loan to purchase this. Um, it was something like 25,000 uh, pounds, which during this time, I think it would have been like 1951 or something like that. It was a tremendous amount of money, especially since the UK was still devastated from the war. So Maxwell ended up... Um, as head of this journal, and eventually he turned it into Pergamon Press, which was his flagship for many, many years. Uh, it became one of the leading scientific journals in the entire world, and um, Maxwell eventually procured an almost near monopoly on Soviet um, scientific publications, which is a big part of why Pergamon became so phenomenally successful. Uh, but he was, you know, almost totally set up at this company by Hambro. And uh, throughout the 1950s, he was surrounded by both Hambro and a lot of these other, you know, old special operations executive hands. And, um, you know, this is really interesting because Maxwell had um, established links uh, with the British intelligence service and the uh, Soviet Union, um, one of the predecessors to the KGB going back to the just really immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And then going into um, 1954, uh, he flew into the Soviet Union. He had uh, major meetings with members of the KGB. And that was essentially when he got the rights for um, these you know, Soviet uh, scientific publications after he had made some kind of arrangement with the KGB. Came back to the UK. Um, MI5 uh, was understandably kind of concerned about this. Um, and MI6 did have some doubts as well. They brought in Maxwell's uh, secretary, uh, Ann Dove, who he had also been having an affair with, to vouch for his loyalty. And Dove was a part of this whole 
you know, kind of special operations nexus. Um, she had worked for them during the Second World War, and it was largely through her uh, good graces that uh, they decided to uh, continue working with Maxwell. So basically, you had this kind of whole network of um, ex-special operations hands um, who had put Maxwell in power, and they had continued to protect him even after it was known that he was collaborating with the KGB in some capacity. Yeah, and here's your direct connection to Epstein, because it is Robert Maxwell's daughter, Ghislaine, who is... Epstein's girlfriend and partner in crime. Yes, yes, yes. And I mean, it's important to note, too, that Hambro was a part also, was a big figure in setting up the World Commerce Corporation, you know, this whole sort of nexus that I think Joan Amory had eventually grown out of uh, in the 1950s. So, you know, that's kind of where you also see the sort of genesis, I think, of these um, these honeypots and so forth as well. Uh, Maxwell and Amory, you know, were kind of polar opposites. Maxwell was labor, though a lot of labor politicians had suspected him of being a closet Tory because of his longstanding ties to people like Hambro. And on the other hand, you did have uh, people like Amory, but uh, they ultimately were a part of this kind of private black intelligence network that was so powerful in the UK in the aftermath of the Second World War. So there is another interesting connection that you make to Resorts International with some of these same guys. Yeah. Resorts is very interesting. Uh, Obviously talked a lot about Resorts over the last couple of years, um, ever since Trump really came into office, uh, which I'll get to in a second. But um, the most uh, pertinent connection to Perfumo and Resorts uh, is William Mellon Hitchcock. He was a scion of the uh, Mellon family of Pittsburgh, one of the great American dynasties. Um, William Mellon Hitchcock is uh, most well known for his role in spreading LSD in the country. He was an early uh, patron of Timothy Leary. He set Leary up at his estate at Millbrook in uh, New York State. And then later, after he booted Leary out, uh, Mr. Billy would relocate to the West Coast and would become the financier for the Brotherhood of Eternal Love which by the late 1960s had become the largest LSD syndicate in the entire world. So um, Mr. Billy did quite a bit to turn on America during the 1960s, but before he got going on that, he was living in the UK at a flat. His roommate was Thomas Corbelly, uh, infamous private detective we were talking about earlier. Uh, they were throwing the one, the, the one that did all the uh, the one that had all the safe words, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the safe words, all that kind of stuff. Um, so anyway, they're uh, they've got this flat in the UK. They're throwing orgies and stuff like that uh, on the weekends or something to that effect. Um, naturally, they eventually befriended Stephen Ward because you know they were all into that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, Mr. Billy becomes a friend of Ward's, uh, later uh, provides some testimony about all the hanky panky that was going on to um, his uh, former in-law, David Bruce, who was the uh, American ambassador at the time. And then he would uh, leave the UK uh, to his adventures in LSD land. And by the late 1960s, he would become one of the largest investors in the gaming interest known as Resorts International. Uh, Resorts was based originally out of the Bahamas um, on Paradise Island. It had formerly been Hog Island. It was turned into Paradise Island by um, Huntington Hartford, who had also been a member of the uh, ring that was unfolding with Ward in the UK during the early 60s. 
um, obviously resorts. It became a major uh, gaming interest there. It really opened up the Bahamas to that type of thing. And um, yeah, Mr. Billy, he was right there with uh, some other interesting figures. Uh, Richard Nixon was reportedly a uh, early investor as well in um, resorts and also potentially got a cut of the skim for the, uh, the uh, toll uh, bridge that uh, brought people from the main Bahama Islands over to uh, Paradise Island. Um, so yeah, he was also not uh, the only Republican president who would eventually have ties to Resorts International either. Um, during the 1980s, a certain Donald J. Trump would become um, the CEO of Resorts International, uh, while it still had a lot of these uh, mobbed-up interests and so forth. Yeah, it's uh... <laughs> wow! What a web! What yeah, a web. It, it really, it really, really, truly is. It it. It really, truly is. And, and Roy Cohn seems to just pop up everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, of course, uh, Cohn was one of the big political mentors to Thomas Corbley. And Cohn um, employed Corbley for many years as a private detective, which is uh, interesting. I mean, Corbley obviously shows up in Perfumo. He shows up um, in the whole, you know, weird Long Island, uh, upstate New York sex circles that uh, were exposed with the Monica Heller thing uh, in 1980. And uh, later in um, the early 90s, he showed up in the Heidi Fly scandal in Hollywood, uh, which also involved Robert Evans as well, uh, who was apparently a longtime friend of Corbelli's. So Corbelli certainly had an uncanny knack for showing up in these um, sexual blackmail rings, which, you know, again, is interesting with all of the rumors uh, floating around for many years about Roy Cohn and what he was up to. And uh and uh, thought in mind that Corbley was his private detective for many, many years. And uh, Corbley also later provided these services to Donald J. Trump, as well as Sir Jimmy Goldsmith. I mean, do you think that, like, if you had to kind of speculate, do you think that there is any kind of, like, this kind of stuff that that might have Trump by the balls? This kind of, like, this, this kind of honeypot kind of stuff? I mean, we all know... It's the stories. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's quite possible. I mean, it's, you know, definitely really interesting that you haven't really seen much with Ghislaine um, after that she was, you know, arrested earlier this year. Um, but I mean, I kind of think at this point in time, I mean, you know, Epstein ultimately had much more extensive ties to the Democratic Party. And of course, it's not really talked about a lot now, but Trump was a Democrat for many, many, many years. That's that's true. That's true. <laughs> so, yeah, I think you haven't really heard more of this because really Trump would go down, I think, if uh, Ghislaine started talking. And so would much of the uh, party establishment of the Democrats with him. Right. So it's a bit of a stalemate, I think, on that end. Well, it seems like things like this might be to, um, you know, get multiple, get people from both sides on board with larger agendas. Yeah, I mean, you definitely see a lot of overlap with that, certainly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is it is a mess. Let's just <laughs> say that. Um, you know, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how this potentially plays out. Um, whenever the 2020 election is finally over with, um, that may not be for a couple more weeks, if not months, uh, based on Trump's comments during the first presidential. So Profumo affair is October, 1963 is when it really breaks. And of course the JFK assassination is November of that year, the next month. 
Is there some connection that you would kind of speculate between the two? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, there's, I mean, there's been some very compelling evidence that's come out over the years that Kennedy himself had actually been ensnared in uh, Ward's ring um, <clears throat> by not one, but two girls uh, specifically. One of them was uh, Hod Dibbins' wife, uh, Parliament's chief whip. And then another one was an Asian woman known as Susie Chang, um, who incidentally had uh, been assisted in uh, fleeing the United States for a time by the uh, law firm that uh, William Donovan had uh, been a partner in. Of course, Bill Donovan was um, an early supporter of the World Commerce Corporation back in the day. But um, that was also why I think ultimately Perfuma was such a major red flag here in the United States. Um, because it also brought up the possibility that uh, Kennedy might have also been implicated in a ring that theoretically the Soviet intelligence services had uh, penetrated. So that was another major factor. And there has been speculation as to how much that might have also played into Kennedy's assassination. I mean, there were a lot of factors that went into Kennedy's assassination. I don't think that Perfumo was one of them. It may not have even been a leading one, but um Certainly, that was something uh, that almost surely would have proved to be extremely damaging to Kennedy going forward. Um, And the reason for that was um, the private detective we were just talking about, Mr. Thomas Corbally. Uh, It does seem that Corbally had gone to the UK and uh, had made an effort to befriend Ward specifically to find out if the rumors were true that Kennedy was um, implicated in this ring. Uh, The FBI had heard rumblings of that going back to 1961 when the affair that Kennedy had 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 supposedly happened. Roy Cohn was a very, very good friend of J. Edgar Hoover's. And um, when Thomas Corbley returned to the United States in 1963, he made a beeline to the FBI and started telling them what he had heard over in the UK. And his attorney um, for this was Roy Cohn. So it's quite likely that Hoover, who utterly despised the Kennedys and especially Robert Kennedy uh, was aware of um, Kennedy's and uh, JFK's involvement in the Perfumo ring, or the award ring rather. And uh, yeah, would have almost surely used that against him since uh, Hoover and Roy Cohn were both effectively fighting for their political lives at the time uh, against Robert Kennedy's justice department. So, this idea that kind of like Kennedy was probably kind of um, kind of compromised by Russian intelligence and the the idea that possibility that there was a push to maybe get Kennedy to resign because of that kind of similar to what Profumo what happened with McMillan with Profumo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think, and then of course there was another scandal to, um, Bobby Baker, who was a close associate. I think it was Bobby Baker. Um, One of LBJ's close associates had also been getting girls for Kennedy. And there was also some belief that one of them might have been involved with um, Soviet intelligence as well. So, I mean, really, Kennedy was getting it from both sides. And, yeah, I do think kind of behind the scenes, that was one of the methods that was being used to put pressure on JFK going forward. I mean, obviously it was well known that he was a womanizer. I mean, the FBI had already had dirt on that for many years, but um, when you bring a Soviet spy into the equation, it's a whole different ball game effectively. 
I'm really curious to see where this goes and how you ultimately connect it all to more recent events and the, the Epstein material. I mean, a lot of it is going to run through uh, Sir Jimmy, uh, Sir James Goldsmith, but um, a big point of emphasis in the second book is going to be Le Sir Cow, um, which, I mean, if you followed my blog or uh, ISGP or anyone who's really followed that, you uh, mm-hmm. are probably aware that Le Sir Cow has been deeply implicated in um, various sex rings really across the world. Uh, members show up in uh, Jimmy Savile stuff. They show up in the stuff with Mark Dutro in uh, Belgium, show up in the Franklin scandal here, and uh, they even oh, show wow. up in Bloody Colonia Dignidad in um, Chile. So uh, the Circal people got around, that was for sure, and uh, that will definitely be a major point of emphasis in the next book. Today, at this time period... Is there anything that you people that you would think that are maybe involved in these type of these type of operations? Like, do you think that that this is well? I I couldn't help but think of like Elliot Spitzer. You know what happened? What happened with him? And that wasn't that long ago. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think Roger Stone might have been you know kind of a successor to Roy Cohn in that regard. I mean, of course. Um, it's not really talked about a lot, but Roger Stone had actually had some involvement with Nexium um, going back uh, to the uh, the last decade. Uh, he'd been their attorney for a time. So, I mean, you have kind of that uh, whole nexus. And then, of course, Stone was the guy who had really outed um, Spitzer's uh, affair with a prostitute as well. So, at a minimum, it does kind of seem like Stone was a guy who was... Um, keeping tabs on this kind of stuff and you know it's interesting in light of the fact that he was also one of the people that was really singled out for prosecution as well after trump came into uh, power so um yeah you got to wonder about that along with his partner uh was it manafort who was also singled out i mean both of these guys uh you know i mean they had cut their teeth working with roy Cone back in the 70s early 80s so um you know, were they aware of some of the stuff that Cohn and Corbley were up to and uh, had possibly brought it into the modern era? I mean, that is a good question. And uh, certainly it is interesting in light of the fact that these were two guys who faced a lot of uh, legal heat after Trump came to office, along with uh, Michael Flynn, who certainly had his mm-hmm. own elaborate intelligence ties as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think that uh, Ranieri was the Nexium? leader do you think that he was running some of this do you think that he was running something similar to this oh yeah absolutely i mean ranieri i mean there's just so many things with nexium you know that i mean are just really staggering um you know that haven't really been addressed i mean one thing that is very ominous um were the ties that Nexium had to the LeBaron family in uh, Mexico. Uh, the LeBarons um, are a big Mormon family. I mean, going way back, they might have even had some links to the Romney family and so forth, um, but certainly uh, major figures. And um, one of the patriarchs of the LeBaron family in Mexico, um, gosh, I can't remember his name now, but I mean, He's kind of referred to as the Mormon Manson. I mean, this guy had had his family members kill quite a considerable amount of people. I think it's like 20, something between like 20 and 30 people or something like that. Um, But anyway, um, the LeBaron family uh, were one of the Mormon groups that were providing girls to um, Nexium in Mexico. And um, that's really interesting in light of uh, geopolitical events that unfolded in Mexico in 2019. Of course, you had the... um, um, 
the nine uh, Americans or Americans with a dual Mexican citizenship that were murdered in Mexico. Um, yeah. They were all uh, linked to the LeBaron family, if not actual members of it. And uh, the LeBarons would later use that incident uh, to rally Trump to designate the Mexican cartels as terrorist organizations so that the U.S. military, a.k.a. uh, the Joint Special Operations Command, could be deployed there to uh, go after them. And um, if you know anything really about the history of Mexico, um, having U.S. troops deployed there is a very, very uh, sensitive thing for them. So, yeah, uh, it's very interesting that you have this prominent Mormon family that has been really at the forefront of lobbying for this, uh, who had these ties to Nexium. Well, also, too, Ranieri was, I mean, he had one of the uh, sons of a former president that was a devotee. And uh, Ranieri, when he was caught, was in Mexico. He was in Monterey. Yeah, no, I mean, the Mexican tie to this has been really downplayed. And I think a lot of it has to do, at least in part, with the ties that he had to these, you know, fundamentalist Mormon families. Because, I mean, all of the Mormon families down there are big into polygamy. And, um, you know, again, if you followed this kind of stuff, um, these families have lots of kids. And sometimes those kids just kind of go missing, you know. Um yeah, there's a lot of speculation about sometimes what they end up doing. Wow. Another one that I can think of historically, um, which I mean, in the last probably like 30, 40 years is David Berg and Children of God. Oh, yeah, that's another one. <laughs> I mean, there had to have been some stuff going on with that because he had those he had those women convinced that they were, you know, prostituting themselves as a form of uh proselytization and uh you know that i i think that there's definitely you could definitely say that there's some kind of speculation of like bringing some kind of uh and like the the religious cult aspect uh like connections and stuff like the people's temple you know you could easily easily see something like that the process church process um yeah And I mean, that's another interesting one, too, because, again, you know, I mean, the process, um, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of denials over the years from ex-process members about many of the more sensational allegations. But one thing they do not deny was the horrendous treatment of the children um, that were sired by process members. Often um, they were taken away from their biological parents. They were sent to orphanages or something to that effect that the process uh, was running. Uh, In many cases, they would rarely, if ever, see their parents again. Uh, In many cases, they were subjected to horrendous abuse at these orphanages. And um, sometimes they would just disappear. Nobody would know what happened to them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting how this kind of racket uh, unfolds. Um, it's kind of a funny thing, of course. Uh, I'm sure you guys are aware of the uh, Process Church eventually became the Best Friends Animal Society. Uh, yes, yes. They're right there yes. at the uh, the border of Utah and Arizona, about 30 or 40 minutes away uh, across the border in Arizona. There's a city called Colorado City, uh, which is pretty much a theocracy run by fundamentalist Mormons. They control the police force, everything there. Um was headed by many years and allegedly still is by warren jeffs 
who is currently in prison for statutory rape of multiple minors. Uh, Jeff's apparently had ranches all across uh, the West where he would uh, go to indulge in these things with uh, underage women. And um, it's kind of happened to be right there in the same vicinity as the Best Friends Animal Society. So that's weird, huh? Yeah, what's up with all the like the breakaway Mormon sex? This is totally new to me. I, I've not yeah, heard I this only, before, Stephen. I only really started to look at it recently, but yeah, you, you kind of see them showing up in these weird places like that. I mean, I had been somewhat aware of this for years because of their you know kind of overlap with Christian identity. Uh, of course, as you guys are probably aware, I've followed that for many years, but um. You know, that's something my research assistant and I, Keith Allen Dennis, have been chronicling. Of course, we're obsessed with this yeah. uh, this kind of quasi-secret society called the Sovereign Order. Well, like a, like a secret society, I mean, I would just say, or like a, the Italian Mafia or whoever. It's a very, uh, they can be very coherent orderly groups these like fundamentalist mormon sects i mean they really do you know in a lot of cases i operate like crime syndicates i mean again going back to the lebaron family in mexico i mean one of the branches of that family had this massive um illegal car ring that they were like running you know between the u.s and mexico and um so a lot of them do get involved in criminal activity along with this you know kind of weird stuff with having children and losing them that kind of thing um they were kind of used to the the outlaw lifestyle in a way from the frontier from their conflicts with the federal government so you know once the the official church went mainstream you could see how especially some of these splinter groups would go off to you know get involved in all kinds of weird stuff yeah well they're i mean they're also very important in mexico too for u.s influence because i mean most of the mormon families in mexico they're in northern mexico they have dual uh, u.s mexico citizenship and uh, many of them are quite prominent there and uh for many years they've been used um as a tool of u.s foreign policy effectively i mean if you know you know much about the history of mexico a lot of the modern uh, government was effectively created from the north by a lot of the uh the freemasons and what have you there and then, you know, a lot of it was really being driven by these ties with uh the masons in the united states and the mormon communities and so forth so um it gets into some really, really weird stuff, to put it mildly. Oh, yeah. Another one that I can think of would be something like the Finder's Case. Mm, yeah, that's another one. And uh, I believe that also had a role in Mexico, too. Um, that's right. It did. Yeah. Uh, finders are another weird one. Um, yeah, my uh, colleague, John Brisson, is uh, working on a book on that, uh, which hopefully will be out soon. It's uh, it's definitely going to have some very good stuff on the Finder's yeah. yeah, as weird as that case is, it's still like a hundred percent true. The thing is, is that I, all those kind of weird cases like that have been used by groups like QAnon now to like establish that all this stuff is like it's always that that little bit of truth mixed mixed in. You know? Yeah, I mean it's that whole kind of CCRU thing of hyperstition, you know, theory fiction or uh, theory fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of blending of fiction with reality, uh, which, you know, mm -hmm. can prove to be quite potent, obviously, in the case of uh, QAnon. <laughs> well, Stephen, uh, Recluse, this has been fascinating. Uh, the book is, is out now, I believe, right? Yes, sir, it is. So uh, where can people find it? And where can people contact you if they have any information? 
Well, they can contact me at my blog. There is a contact thing there. It is uh, visupview.blogspot.com. That is V-I-S-U-P, view, all one word, dot blogspot.com. The book is available at uh, the farm's official uh, store. Uh, the address for that is the farm podcast, all one word, the farm podcast dot store. And you can also find links to it uh, at my blog as well. Currently, it's only available as an ebook. Uh, we are going to get the physical copy out uh, probably in time for Christmas, but uh, definitely, you know, don't let that dissuade you from picking up an ebook uh, in the intern. Uh, so, yeah, check that out. And obviously, I've got my podcast, uh, The Farm Podcast, which, um, you know, we're getting a great roster of guests, thanks in no small part to you guys. Um, Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just uh, about to have David Metcalf on, uh, Robert Guffey, Erica Lukes. And um, of course, we've already had a lot of great people. I just had uh, Blue Oyster Colts, Albert Bouchard on, Peter yeah. Robbins, uh, Richard B. Spence, Douglas Valentine. Of course, I've had Chris Knowles on a number of times, Jason Horsley, John Bevel Aqua. So, um, you know, I think it's, uh, it's turned into a pretty solid podcast. So definitely check me out there sometime when you get a chance as well. Uh, I highly recommend it. And also thank you for uh, helping us hook up with uh, Richard Spence as oh, well. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, that will have been last week when this comes out. All right, cool. Well, uh, it took, if there's nothing to add, we will go ahead and close out the interview and uh, guys, we'll be back to close out the show. It could spirit normal. Okay, welcome back, guys, to Conspiracy Normal. We're going to close out the show here. And uh, that was a very interesting interview with our good friend Recluse, Mr. Steven Snyder. We kind yeah, of... Yeah, we've uh, been waiting on this, this uh, book for a while, and uh, we are uh, surprised to see that it is going to be a part one of three. Yes, um, so this is just laying the in entire groundwork for even, I guess, understanding all of the different connections he's going to be going into to eventually end up at the, who knows, what might be like the genesis of the Epstein scandal itself. Yeah, and, you know, stay tuned, guys. I'm sure in 2021, we're going to have him back on at least a couple of times to talk about the next two books. So I would definitely stay tuned for that. Uh, I was pretty impressed. Um, there's a lot of detail in these books. So when you get these, you're going to be bombarded with a lot of names and a lot of different connections. And a so, lot of, a lot of notes and a lot of references to cross reference, everything he's presenting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, um, things that really interest me are like the, the basic things that you can accomplish uh, the utility of something like having a sex club or a ring for these powerful people so like we can brainstorm on all the types of things you could do uh, you could blackmail uh, the other side or people in another country maybe that you needed to get on board with something going on in your country or it could be like a domestic thing for uh, political opposition in your own country uh, you can blackmail both sides 
for a larger goal, so that would be on maybe both sides of a different countries or political parties, something like that, uh, you could create more cohesion and a bonding experience. Um, you know, with and a, and a bondage experience, <laughs> and a bondage experience with you know some kind of belonging to this you know this group, this permissive elitist group uh, that you share with other people, um, and then too, I mean, actual actual magic. There's a lot of possibility for that, and uh, even you know some weird kind of initiatory thing that leads to more cohesion and bonding. Um, what, what do you think about what else you could... Is there anything else you could think of for, like, what else you could accomplish with something like that? Well, like, I mean, I think, like you said, I mean, I think just this... The, the blackmail... I mean, it's an extremely powerful tool. I mean, we're talking about a very primal urge, right? I mean, you can just about get, just about get anybody in some kind of compromising position. So I, I, I guess the, the, I guess for the, the, the advice for everybody out there is start your own kind of like sex club or even better, your own kind of sex cult. And I mean, you got it made. What do you think about the, the mixing of, um, these clubs and occult trappings or ritualistic garb or, you know, that, those yeah. Kind of yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, again, I think we're dealing with the same kind of what came first, the chicken and egg kind of idea that we've got with like secret societies and intelligence agencies. So is that, well, first of all, is it a mockery of secret societies and kind of what secret societies might hold dear? Or are you actually trying to, bring something new into the secret society. Kind of like, uh, you know, I think, um, Steven mentioned the hellfire club. There was a lot of that going on in the hell in the hellfire club. Is this some kind of like weird fertility cult kind of stuff that you're mixing in? And then also well, and how much is Steven... just, just fun too. I mean, just uh, right. people feel right. like they're being naughty, you know, might as well turn up a notch and, you know, draw some pentagrams on the floor. And right. We were, uh, when we first saw the cover of the book, we, we, we thought it was an interest, very interesting cover. Um, it's basically got a, a girl, like, I, I don't know if she's tied to a chair, but she's sitting in a chair, and uh, you've got, like, two, like, you know, topless women wearing Masonic aprons. And uh, we just thought it was such an over-the-top cover, but apparently, according to Steven, I mean, that's the type of stuff that happened in these. So, I mean... He speculates that, like... Doing stuff with these occult trappings would discredit victims or witnesses. Like when they spoke about yeah. it, it would just seem crazy. Yeah. But again, I mean, is that also, is that because they actually, but you also have to deal with the fact that maybe there's people that actually believe in this stuff too. Well, yeah. I mean, was there actual, was there a actual sex magic? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that there definitely was in some of these things. I mean, I, I think it's pretty hard to tell. But then you, maybe, you know, the outcome is still the same for, like, the authorities. If they're listening to this story, they might think it's so outlandish that it's not possibly real. 
So no matter what the motive, the outcome may still be the same anyway. Yeah, and then we I think um, that's entirely possible. When we touched on the in the Patreon, maybe uh how much a lot of this kind of stuff though though it may exist in the US, it seems a lot of it seems really uniquely uh British and that the um the prevalence of it in the United States seems to be where the United States is um really linked to the UK and in what's called the Anglo-American establishment. So it's it's kind of uh seems to be kind of culturally specific too. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have the whole like uh, Thomas Corbelly that he mentions that tried to copy it in the US and all this type of thing. Um yeah, it's um it's interesting stuff. Very interesting. Was there anything else that we wanted to kind of touch on on that? Uh, no, just how, you know, the stuff that he touches on in this book is all, um, you know, most of it is, is historical fact that can be uh, cross-referenced. Um, you know, I guess unless it's, the a lot of these are witness accounts, so, you know, who knows. Um, but, um, you know, a lot. it seems that a lot of this, this stuff that's a lot more real is is mined by um, a lot of conspiracy theory that may not be real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's always you know it's always important to uh, to know the difference. And unfortunately, that's usually uh, it's usually time that allows that. Yes, yes. I mean, we're talking about historic events now. As we get closer, I think for Stephen, he's going to get closer into. The Epstein stuff, I mean, there's probably a lot of stuff that we already do not know about all that. So only time is going to really tell the the depth of that, I think. So like with this material in this book, a lot of these people are dead. You know, he can go back and find these, these interesting, strange connections. But uh, that's going to be, I think, radically different by the time we get to, 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 to uh, part three. So I don't know. There may be a little more speculation in that book, possibly. But I'm looking forward to both, and yeah, we're looking absolutely. forward to uh, we're looking forward to interviewing Stephen on uh, both both books as well. So, uh, so in closing out this episode, uh, we actually did get a review from uh, a listener that calls themselves the Fathoms of Fortiana. Oh, shit. And they said, been following Adam and crew. Uh, of course I would. Been following Adam and crew moment of silence for Luke and his population control rhetoric. So that person's been, that goes way back Dang. since the inception of the podcast found him through Dr. Future. I love the way they will tackle any subject and make it interesting. Episode three thirty eight was mind bending. Give them a listen, sub, and discuss. Which episode 338 was the one about mimetic warfare with cool. Jose Herrera. And it's, uh, the title of this is Conspiranormal Promotes Critical Thinking. Wow. All right. So We'll take that. Yeah, we will definitely take that. And that was a five-star review. And um, 
That definitely helps us, and you hear this on probably every podcast that you listen to, that definitely helps us get up in the algorithms on iTunes and get up the chart. So if you want to help us out, that's another way that you can. Plus, you can go to Patreon, and Sergio, you can tell where they can find that. On patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Uh, we've got a big announcement on that coming really soon. We're just waiting on some merch to be manufactured as we speak. And we hope to uh, bring a lot of extra stuff to you on Patreon. We had a little segment with Recluse after the show tonight. And uh, we talked about, um, what is it, Clan Fraser, Another one of the groups in in this book with all these different scandals, uh, as well as uh, Alexander Guterma, who showed up in the Penny Royal podcast and uh, in our segments with the creators of the Penny Royal podcast. Uh, so things like that are coming out every week on patreon.com slash conspiranormal. And we're going to have a new, um, a new set of benefits to the different Patreon tiers coming up soon. Yes, yes, we will. Yes, we will. So, so be ready for that announcement. And also, uh, you can go to YouTube, subscribe to us on Conspiracy Normal Podcast. That also helps us out there. And I think that's pretty much all the announcements. So. Alright guys, I want to thank you all for listening and we will be back to bring you some great weird stuff next week on Conspiracy. If you would like to help the show, please consider becoming a Patreon www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com and please check out our YouTube channel Conspiranormal Podcast